This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. One of the myths that surround negative emotions is that if we look at them, they become real and they become bigger. But if we ignore them, they eventually go away, as if we can just forget them by denying their existence. That could not be further from the truth. The symptom may temporarily alleviate, but the feelings always lurk around waiting to return at the soonest circumstance that will grant them access to return. By facing the emotion, however, we give it a voice and offer it a chance to be known, serve its purpose, and be able to safely discharge. In this way, we do not let it fester and grow and do sneaky self-sabotage attacks. Instead, we make room, invite it in, and allow it to be known and be reconciled with our psyche. When we stop searching for these missing parts of us because we gave them permission to return to us, we no longer chase the addiction as the addiction itself was just a means of avoidance. We stop the avoidance, the addiction voluntarily relinquishes. Valeria Tellis interviews Saman Nasir, aka Sami, a healer, meditation coach, certified hypnotherapist, a member of the American Hypnosis Association, instructor at the Hypnosis Motivation Institute, and speaker. Saman Nasir has been helping people make positive changes in their lives for over 10 years. Saman works with a network of psychologists, MFTs, and psychiatrists to provide the most comprehensive care for her clients. Saman is a kind and gentle practitioner and cares for all her clients as if they were her own family. She has been on the path of studying Buddhism, Jainism, the Sedona Method, Raphael Kushner, Wayne Dyer, Ericksonian, and Capucinian hypnosis. Saman is also studying other modalities, spiritual practices, and ego state personalities in order to hone her craft and provide her clients with the care that they deserve, particularly in cases of addiction, anxiety, depression, ADD, and healing from breakups. Meet Sami at don'twaittolive.com. Here's the interview with Saman Nasir. In your own words, who is Sam Nasir, Sammy? Hi, Valerie. Um, so the way I would describe myself is I'm um, a seeker of spirituality. I've always been ever since I was little. And now I'm a certified hypnotherapist, a meditation coach. I've been described as a healer, but really what I specialize in is 
talking to different parts of ourselves, talking to different parts of our brains and getting answers from our subconscious so we can really tap into that instinct, that latent instinct that's waiting to talk to us. So that's sort of how I see myself. Um, but as far as um, what I do is I, I do hypnotherapy and I'm also an instructor at the American Hypnosis Association. So my second official question to you is freedom. What is freedom to you, Sammy? So Valerie, I feel like uh, freedom is another one of those things that we seek for outside of ourselves. We think that freedom is something we can attain if we can do enough right things, if we can get the right kind of education and we can find the right kind of work. And some of that is essentially true in one sense of the word. But I believe true freedom, which is liberation, yeah. What we're really looking for, Valerie, is that void that we're afraid of and we're running from all mm. the time. That's internal, that we're born with. Mm. It's just the nature of the ego. And one of the ways that we can have true freedom is we can stop essentially being scared of what darkness lies inside of us and learn to integrate it with the core of who we are, the consciousness that we are, the love and compassion that we truly are. If we can integrate that, that's how we can have real, true freedom. Would you be able to give me a glimpse or an example of what it looks like to be a human being who has integrated the good and the bad, all the sides, the shadow, the light, the dark? What would that look like, Sammy? Sure. So I'll get very, very specific and I'll give a very uh, small example, but perhaps one that um, might resonate and kind of stand for other bigger issues in our lives. So uh, when I'm born, I'm pure consciousness. I do not know that I'm flawed. I do not know that there's something wrong with me. I don't even understand at that time when I'm a baby or a child that there's something wrong with me being narcissistic and expecting all my needs to be met, the whole world to bend around when I cry, my mom to come in running, right? And my, my father to provide for me, we almost feel entitled. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. as we grow up and the process of socialization teaches us that we're fundamentally flawed, that we're selfish and we're asking for things we shouldn't ask for. However, human beings evolve in stages. So if we're allowed to complete our normal um, stages of development, which is narcissism as at first, understanding that objects are separate from us and other people have needs. And if we're healthily allowed to go through that, we somewhat grow up with an integrated self of self and we learn to give and we learn to be compassionate because that's what we in fact received and that's what was modeled for us. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of caretakers, a lot of parents are just so terrified of the idea that their children might grow up entitled or they might grow up selfish or they might grow up not really appreciating the sacrifice of the parents that there is a constant reminder of the lack. There's mm. a constant reminder of you don't do enough to help out your mom. Do you think money grows on trees? Mm. Uh, you know, do you know how hard we work and we don't have money for rent? And somehow those that hurry to kind of turn the child into an adult makes the child feel very fragmented because on one hand, their biology is telling them, you're supposed to be selfish right now. You're supposed to have your needs met. But they are forced 
to repress that side of them in order to create um, sort of this external reality which matches who they are. And so the the unmet needs that the parents had that they projected onto the child, the child internalizes that, internalizes the lack, and internalizes the flaw. Mm-hmm. However, because it doesn't feel good to feel that lack, because that's not our true nature. Our true nature is un, you know, is an unhib- unhibited. It's boundless. Mm, so right. when we disconnect and we fragment these parts of ourselves, it doesn't feel good. But instead of really looking at them and instead of really figuring out why they're there and what we can do to integrate them, our instinct is to just naturally create our shadows, create shadow selves that we trap into the basement of our awareness and refuse to look at those parts of ourselves. But unfortunately, the process of exiling those parts of ourselves creates um, this unhealthy, almost disease inside of us because those parts fester. They're looking to integrate with our core or of our consciousness, but they're denied. It's like standing at the gates of heaven and being denied mm-hmm. access. So those parts become more loud and more vicious and they turn into anxiety and depression and addiction. And they're constantly asking to be reintegrated. But as we grow up, we learn more and more that in order to be accepted socially, that we cannot be selfish, we cannot be loud, we cannot be angry, right? Um, And we learn to reject those parts of ourselves. Mm. So then when these emotions don't get heard in the form of anxiety or depression, they turn into body syndromes and we start to experience aches and pains. We start to experience like the shutting down of our digestion. And there's so much anxiety and cortisol and and adrenaline being pumped into our our blood because of all of this fight or flight response from denying our true nature. And it takes so much effort, so much power Mm -hmm. of our brain goes into repressing these parts that we, our willpower cannot stand this kind of stress. So that's when we start to notice something is wrong. Something is off and I cannot figure out what it is. And it's usually these parts asking for that reconciliation. One of the ways that we can do that, first of all, is with mindfulness. It's just admitting that those parts of us are there is a huge relief in of itself because like running from them and not looking from them creates a lot of stress. It's like that monster under the bed. We don't know what it is, what it looks like, but it's just there all the time. And we're always terrified. Oh my God, is that part of me going to come out when I'm in a work meeting? Is it going to come out with my husband? Is it going to come out with my children? Is it going to come out on at some person on the street? I don't know when this part of me is going to come up. So there's this constant underlying anxiety. We would be much better off if we just looked at them, asked questions of ourselves, like, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? Could it be like this? When have I had this feeling before? And how can I make this part of myself feel good and reparent? this part of myself in a way that doesn't conflict with society in a way that's not unacceptable, but at least I need to give it a voice in the privacy of my own home. But a lot of us even refuse to do that. So that's sort of the process that we follow. That is so, so true uh, how it works. And I see that maybe one of the ways to know that if we can measure what it looks like to be an integrated human being or somebody who embraces their true nature, it would be that sense of calm, perhaps what we call inner peace, satisfaction. That's what comes to me, right, Sammy? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Because essentially there's a battle inside of us. Mm. And when when we give up that battle and we make room for everyone inside of ourselves, 
to have a voice, even the part of us that feels guilty or lonely, then we're really creating that calmness and that peace that, that you're speaking of because there's no more fighting. There's yeah. no more lying. There's no more denying. When you say true nature, that what comes to me is spirituality. You know, so many spiritual teachings and traditions they speak of, of the soul, or what life is all about, nature itself, the integration even of the dark and light. So do you integrate actually spirituality with science and therapy, or this is something that it's not yet integrated in your practice? Uh, no, actually, uh, what you said uh, first, that 100% speaks to me. I think without spirituality, we only have access to uh, limited parts of ourselves. We only have access to the logical brain, which can only have, our left brain can only have so much information, limited information. It's limited by our experiences thus far. But integrating spirituality really is what opens up that limitless source of information, our collective consciousness, everything that's stored in our DNA that's essentially sleeping, waiting for permission for us to integrate spirituality so we can have access to that um, information. And this process of integrating light and dark, exactly how you said, that's exactly the spiritual practice that I um, bring with my work where we are willing to be brave enough to look at everything, the light and the dark, because consciousness does not discriminate. Right. It's it's accepting of right. all things, and that includes us and parts of us. What is your understanding of healing? Is there a destination for healing? Can we one day say that we are healed, or it's a journey? It's a little bit of both. So it is a journey, um, but at the same time, there does come a place where we can say, there's nothing anymore that I'm afraid to look at. Mm, and yeah. it happens rather quickly, Valerie. Yeah. It's not this long, drawn-out process where you sit on top of a mountain for 30 years and put <laughs> your body through <laughs> intense amounts yeah. of torture. Of course, <laughs> that is that is a route that we could take. Right. But I believe that the modern <laughs> world, the world that we live in now, presents so many of these, these challenges. And what I like to think of is opportunities of these different drills for our brain because there's so many opportunities in any social situation for so many triggers to come up and we can use those triggers. They're not bad things. They're just showing us our fears and our projections. Mm, and yeah. we can come to a place where we can say, everything that is coming to me is just another part of consciousness. And I'm willing to sit with it. I'm willing to breathe through it. I'm willing to ask questions, clarifying questions of my psyche. Why do I feel this way? Could it be because of this situation? Could it be because of my childhood trauma? Could it be because this is something that's lacking inside of me and the other person's triggering me because they remind me of my own lack? Is that possible? Mm -hmm. And then as we go through, we integrate more and more information about ourselves. And we come to a place where we could say, look, everything is acceptable to me and nothing kind of turns me away from this path of self-discovery and self-actualization. And that's what I would consider a healing because we're on the path to, to being okay with no matter what part of ourselves comes up and wants to talk to us, we're okay with it. That's yeah. what healing really is, is that integration. And what comes to me when you say that is unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Right, if we are able to embrace everything unconditionally, which seems to be a journey, but it's the nature of life, isn't it, Sammy? Unconditional love, that's what life is. 
Yes. And a lot of times what we do is we compartmentalize that unconditional love and we say, well, I'm willing to give unconditional love (laughs) to others, not to myself or the other way around. Right. But what we find is that unconditional love, when practiced on others, comes very naturally to being able to give that to ourselves because it's the same part of the brain that's giving it. So when we say, mm. oh, I'm willing to offer it to my daughter because I love her, but I can't give it to that coworker that upsets me because she's so rude or entitled, right. then we're not really offering unconditional love because the same part of the brain that's giving it that unconditional love to our daughter is now being restricted. The energy is being restricted from mm. flowing. Mm. So it's almost like wow. trying to use your arm to lift something up, but but trying to restrict yourself and saying, I'm not going to use my forearms or my triceps. Mm. I'm going to try to only use my biceps. Yeah. <laughs> yes. it's, it's a cohesive process. It's, um, you know, it's, it's like a team. It's a team of, of, of different parts of us that come together. So we have to offer it to everything unconditionally. I never heard it that way. That's what a fascinating point of view. And scientific too, at the level of the brain, how it works. If we say, we claim that we love unconditionally, then it's one thing that means we have to, in a way, to love everything unconditionally. Not just parts of life, but life as a whole, right? Yes, because it's the same muscle in the brain that where the unconditional love comes from. It all comes from the the prefrontal cortex. Uh, that's the our logical brain, but it's also capable of great amounts of love. And that part rationalizes that, for instance, Sammy loves her her pets, but she doesn't like her coworkers. For instance, okay, then. I must not practice myself fully. I must hold back. So I wouldn't ever be able to love my pets the way that I want to love them because that part of my brain will want to sabotage it because they will think my priority is to not really give unconditional love. Mm. So it will actually be working against me in that sense. I have a few more warm-up questions for you. The next one is about the purpose of the human experience. What do you think that is? I believe the purpose of the human experience is to not just integrate ourselves, but kind of just integrate the whole state of humanity. Because what we pass on um, through our DNA and through our epigenetics is not just actual physical traits, but also our understanding, our viewpoint of the world and our view of love. And when we incorporate true unconditional love, the the love that you, you spoke of earlier, we actually pass that on to our descendants. And that creates a shift in all of humanity. So our job is actually bigger than than we think. In healing ourselves, mm-hmm. we really heal mankind. What do you love most about being in a human body? And what has been your greatest challenge? Hmm. So um, what I love about being in the human body is how much it's willing to just work for us and work with us. It's always giving us those amazing signals to let us know that, you know, Valerie, you're working too hard. You need a break. Or, you know, Valerie, I don't feel like you're um, doing this to your fullest extent. Or Sammy, I don't believe this person is safe. And our body just clenches in the presence of certain people. Or Sammy, you have a trauma that needs resolved. So I love how much our body, if we listen to it, is willing to talk to us. And the human experience is so beautiful because the mind and the body 
work so well together if we allow if we allow them to. Perhaps the biggest challenge um, for me is is really just this discovery that a lot of the things that are really true are are really worth fighting for are really worth trying for are actually very anti-instinctual. So I'll give you an example of that. We are very hardwired to move ourselves away from pain. So when we touch a hot stove, our instinct is to not keep touching it. However, our mind just in a blanket way applies that to emotions and thinks we're supposed to do the same thing with emotions. When something feels bad, we're like, ouch, we want to retreat from it. But we actually need to do the anti-instinctual thing and move into the pain, allow that message of that pain to be fully, fully heard. It's not like physical pain where we actually need to retreat in order to have safety. We need to put ourselves away from fire or from floods. When it comes to our emotions, we actually need to go deeper and put ourselves into the center of that emotion because emotion was placed there as a navigation system. And if we retreat from an emotion, the emotion feels like its job wasn't done. Mm -hmm. So it gets louder and louder and and more becomes problematic. Um, But the challenge is to be able to really do the the thing that our psyche is telling us not to do, which is move into the pain. We have this idea of perfection, I guess, that life should be perfect or should be this way, that way. And emotions, they become abandoned and ignored, denied, and negative emotions, especially by us. Do you see a difference between feelings and emotions? Do you describe them differently? Um, yes. So I would say an emotion has a little bit more information than a feeling. Yeah. Um, and an emotion is mostly the response of our nervous system or of our body. So if, um, for instance, um, my mom used to call me uh, by my full name when she was upset. Now, when I listen to someone call me by my full name, my body will react even before my mind has a feeling about what has just happened. The body will clench up. My uh, throat might get you know, tight. My mouth might get dry because it's preparing me for danger. It's saying you're in trouble, Sammy, because nobody usually calls you Saman Nasir, right? right so right. Um, something's wrong. So that would be an example of an emotion versus a feeling would be more of a, a mental, like an emotion or sorry, a, a, a brain telling me something's off or something's wrong versus the body telling me. Mm-hmm. So I always tend to pay more attention to emotions because the mind can sometimes lie to us, but the body almost never lies. What inspired you to become a hypnotherapist, Sammy? Well, I um, recognized very early on that perhaps the most important discovery that we should be making is ourselves and the most important journey we should ever be taking is the one that we take inside of ourselves. And from the moment that I just sort of gained consciousness, I noticed that everybody was seemed to be operating on some sort of programming, never really waiting to ask questions. And I notice how people would just take things at face value and uh, people wanted to gossip. And even within families, um, I saw like a lot of backstabbing and I thought, why would it be? And for some reason, the only answer I could come up with when I was very young is that people don't seem to be thinking for themselves because they don't seem to know that there is some help available for them to be able to to see this about themselves and to be able to help be helped through the process. And that's one of the things that inspired me is I thought, if I can look for the answers, then I can help others find these answers 
and they don't have to live in so much pain. They don't have to spend so much time, you know, screaming at each other and talking bad about each other and being nice to someone to their face. But the second they leave the table, you know, saying things like, did you see the way she was dressed? Or, you know, she's just only after her husband for the money. And those kind of things really, really triggered me when I was young. And I thought, how can you ever know who's honest and who's not? And then I thought, oh my God, I realize now these people just need help. They need to be shown away because they don't know what's possible. This is all they've ever known. So that inspired me to seek answers. And then, like you said earlier, spirituality really is what opened my eyes, this idea of of a consciousness and how generous and compassionate it is. And that's what I wanted to model in my own life and then, you know, the lives of those around me. I'll be asking you questions now related to the article you wrote why this addiction is the title of the article. So do you work mainly with addiction? Do you treat addiction mainly or other kinds of dysfunctions and uh, disease? I, it's actually funny you said that because earlier when you were talking about perfectionism, I wanted to just <laughs> scream and be oh, like, oh my God, Valerie, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. one of my, my favorite actually topics, even possibly more than addiction, because perfectionism mm. is something so much of us really yeah. suffer from and don't really realize how much it actually stands in our way. Um, that's one of my favorite things to work on, aside from uh, you know procrastination, which is often linked actually to perfectionism, because we create so much pain by, by trying to outdo either someone else or try to outdo our best that we did at one time, that our brain kind of shuts down and says, look, if you're going to put that standard on me and say that I have to do that, that seems very hard and impossible. And the brain's job is to preserve, um, you know, glucose and oxygen at all costs. So it says, okay, I'm going to shut down and not give you the resources you need because the demand that you're putting on me is very high. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I'm going to have enough for the rest of the day's functioning. Uh So that's how we, we feel like, oh my God, I feel so stressed out when I work on this project or I feel sleepy and I don't want to do this. I want to do something relaxing. That's our brain going into preservation mode and it all starts Mm -hmm. with perfectionism. So that's actually one of my favorite topics aside from addiction. And um, I I work with anxiety. I work with relationships. I work with, you know, uh, divorced women, divorced men, um, you know, uh, healing after breakups, finding yourself again. Um, those sort of topics. But as long as it has an emotional component, I'm able to to work on that. So anything from smoking to, you know, depression to fixing relationships with family, all of that sort of form uh, falls in my realm. It's funny that you say that and emphasize the perfectionism. You brought that back (laughs) because (laughs) it is not my favorite topic, I would say, but the unfolding of that, the um, uncoding of that, just the exploration of what is perfection. I don't see anything perfect in nature. It's just uh, perfectly imperfect. Yes. And it's extremely beautiful, right, Sammy? Mm-hmm. There's nothing like nature. And that's what I, I kind of usually relate to when I think about perfectionism, nature. It is imperfect, imperfect at the same time. So we... And that's what makes nature so beautiful is uh, that imperfection adds that element of um, unpredictability, which really fascinates us. Yes, right. And we feel at home even. We feel we belong in nature. Most of us do, um, at least from my perspective. It might be that remembrance, right, that this is something that's in us. That's who we are, too. So addiction, how would you describe what addiction is? What is your definition for addiction? 
So addiction would be something outside of ourselves that we feel that we need in order to be complete, something that we cannot um, live without or tell ourselves that we can't live without. And it starts to become destructive. It starts to affect other areas of our life, like relationships, work, um, you know, our personal goals. It starts to get in the way of that. That's what I would consider loosely what an addiction is. Would you use the word imbalance to relate to addiction? Some people have, so I'm wondering if you would say that too. Yes, yes, it imbalance. leads to imbalance. Yes, it eventually leads to imbalance. And the types of addiction, that's another curiosity of mine. The most common ones, I would say most of us already know, but I would love for you to kind of give me this, let's say the difference between the common types of addiction and the most subtle ones, that they are also common. They are there. Everyone might have them, but we don't know. Hmm. Okay. So for the, that's a very good question, by the way. Um, the common ones I would say that most of us think of would be chemical addictions. So it would be anything from, uh, you know, alcohol and heroin and smoking and, you know, pr even prescription drugs, painkillers, such as that. But then there's also love addiction where we feel like, oh my God, when this person doesn't call me, I, I feel so bad. I can't focus on work. But when he does call me, I feel so good. Or when she's around, I feel complete. But when she leaves, I'm, I'm just, I have so much anxiety. That sort of love addiction that we can also perhaps relate to. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, work. Uh, people bury themselves in work because they don't want to face um perhaps the problems at home, right? So they just bury themselves in work so they don't have to look at, you know, oh my God, my kid is not doing so good at school or, you know, I think my wife might be bored with me. That type of addiction becomes also problematic. Um, there's, you know, a pornography addiction. I, I work a lot with, with men specifically that are like, you know, my relationships are not as fulfilling because I'm sort of overstimulating myself with images of, you know, women that, regular women in my life can't meet that standard because a lot of that is so staged. It's presenting an incorrect view of, of women for me. So sex addiction, porn addiction, gambling. And then Valerie, I would like to, like you asked, uh, to speak specifically of some of the subtler addictions that we might not think of as addiction, um, which, which would be, um, we can use a certain type of food as an addiction, or we can use, um, even vacationing as an addiction because we may feel like, oh, my life at home is so boring. I live for those vacations. Now, Don't get me wrong, vacations are fun and we should, you know, have that kind of variety in our lives. But sometimes that's people, all that they live for. They're like, I don't feel good at home. I hate the city that I live in. And if we look underneath that, oftentimes it's not the city or it's not the family or it's not that particular apartment building. It really has to do with this need to escape, this need to feel like my life is not where I would like it to be. And I would do anything not to face it. That is what the, you know, addiction really is saying is that there's something about yourself that you're not looking at. So it can manifest in all of those forms. It can manifest as in nail biting or even cutting or self-destructive habits because they take our attention away for something that's calling out to us and distracting us with something external. Let me see if I have any other questions about it. Dopamine, it's something that the article you wrote, you say, addiction is the outsourcing of our feel-good hormones, especially dopamine. Talk to me for a moment for those who don't know what dopamine is and why it's also called the pleasure hormone. 
Mm-hmm. So um, this is a very important thing for for us to really know about when we become we, we when we become ready to take that journey and to start doing the work because dopamine plays a very big part in rewiring our brain. So essentially, dopamine is a chemical, a neurochemical that our body naturally produces. Our minds naturally produce that. The healthy purpose of dopamine, why it was placed in us by evolution, was to make sure that we survived, to make sure that we moved towards things that were pleasurable. So when we were uh, basically cavemen or nomads, what would happen is that we would get closer to a source of water or to a source of like, you know, running water or or food or berries or something like that. We smelt them. It felt good. The, The point of dopamine was to move us towards that particular pleasurable stimulus so that we could find a healthy place for our our tribe and we could survive. Now, when it starts to become problematic is that in the modern world, in especially the Western world, we are exposed to such huge amounts of dopamine that it kind of messes up our brain chemistry and we stop getting pleasure from what we were actually meant to get pleasure from, which is completion of little tasks, doing things that feel good for our body, taking a bath, being clean, you know, those those types of things, eating a, a reasonable amount of food and having proper digestion, sleep. Those are the things that are supposed to bring us dopamine. But when we introduce huge amounts of dopamine via, for instance, video games or via chemicals such as heroin or morphine, what we're doing is we're telling our brain, oh, this is my standard of what I expect dopamine to look like. Anything less than that, don't even notice it. So over time, our brain says, okay, so what you're telling me is that this amount of dopamine is what's good for me. So what I'll do is I'll remove some of the dopamine receptors. The dopamine receptors are meant to take out dopamine out of the brain So that if there's too much of it. Mm-hmm. So our brain kind of atrophies those receptors for Mm -hmm. dopamine, which means now we are incapable of getting little pleasures. Things that Mm -hmm. used to please us no longer please us because we have set a higher standard. And that's what makes the addiction worse is because an addict or somebody that is used to getting a certain high feels like, oh, I can just repeat that forever. I can keep getting that high if I just do a little bit more of this or if I just somehow I'm able to get to that place where I was when I first initially felt this euphoria. They destroy their brain chemistry more and more and they have to continue to add more of that chemical or add more of that that original stimulus that gave them the pleasure. And eventually they can't get pleasure from anything. Even the drug of their choice stops bringing them that pleasure. And that's usually when they experience a severe crisis because now nothing is actually bringing them pleasure. Nothing feels good. Completing a task doesn't feel good. Caring for their kids doesn't make them feel good. Eating a good meal doesn't. All of those things that used to bring pleasure before. So that's why in really being able to look at addiction, we have to look at the facts, which is by upsetting our, our, our dopamine system, we're actually causing a permanent change in our brains that will be, that will take us to a place that's very dark and terrifying because then we won't be able to do, we won't have motivation to do anything in life because nothing will be able to give us that joy, give us that dopamine. Wow, Sammy. So in a way it could become permanent, that change in the brain. That's from what you're saying. Do you feel or think that this is the reason why there's no specific, there's no cure per se for addiction at this time because it has become permanent, the damage? Yes. So I would say that's one reason specifically is that it becomes very, very hard. Secondly, one of the reasons there's no cure for it is because most places aren't really looking to do this process of 
of digging for the root cause being that we need to be okay with a little bit less dopamine to understand that that's healthy. Most most addiction programs just take us through just avoiding the stimulus and we live in fear of it. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm avoiding bars. I'm avoiding those friends that usually would take me to the bar or I'm avoiding my drug dealer. But honestly, what if I just relapse? What if I have that one stimulus come up that I can't control and then it'll take me back into it. Mm-hmm. So that's why a lot of people feel like it's not really curable because we're not really doing the process of understanding mm-hmm. how the dopamine actually works. We're just thinking we can just match our high, right? right. So yeah. that would be one yeah. reason. But the other one is, yes, there is a very large period of time for which our brain takes in order to create those receptors. Again, some of them are so badly damaged that we cannot recreate them. But what we can do is we can start to become sensitive to dopamine again, which is what we really want because we've desensitized it by giving it such huge amounts. And as we start to introduce less and less amounts and just kind of sit with it and have the higher purpose of just kind of self-actualization and becoming more spiritual, then we'll notice that we will get the tolerance to sit with lower levels of dopamine in ultimately our brain will start to adjust a little bit more, right? So it's kind of some of the change is semi-permanent, some of it is permanent, but we can start to feel sensitive to dopamine. Again, there's ways through certain meditation, certain forms of hypnosis and Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy that will reintroduce us to a higher sensitivity to dopamine. That's when we start to get pleasure out of other things again. And that's when we start to quote unquote feel normal again or how we used to before the addiction. And maybe we don't find there's no cure for some of these imbalances, but we can still go through the process of healing. I love what you do. And you being open to explore different techniques, even integrating mindfulness in some aspects of spirituality. It means a lot to me to just to witness that. It's incredible. Thank you, Sam, and to being open, uh, open to life. And I wish that we can do, all of us, at an individual level, can do this, can become more aware that life is everything. It's the good and the bad. It's okay not to be okay. We don't need to feel good all the time. It's fine. Yes, yes. And um, sorry to cut you off, Valerie. I just wanted, you were making such a good point. I just want to add to that is learning to be okay is not just about using our willpower to say, oh, I'm fine or just Mm. doing affirmations, but really truly understanding that those times when we feel a little bored or a little agitated, that's actually our brain resetting itself. Our um, A part of our brain called the striatum actually needs a little bit of boredom to reset itself so that Mm. it can actually truly perform the biological functions in an optimal way because when we have too much excitement or too much stimulation, um, our a part of our brain that's triggered is the amygdala. And yes. too much triggering of the amygdala, even though it, it would be in an excited form, actually kind of takes over the body and doesn't let the body reset itself. So those times when we're a little bored or a little sleepy or we're like, oh, I just feel blah and jaded, yeah. those are actually really good times for the body. The body's resetting itself. So we really need to give time for the body to be able to do that. In the end of the article you wrote, you say, the shadows were never separate from us. It is the acknowledgement and the acceptance of them that ultimately will set us free. I mean, it resonates. I keep saying that. That's exactly what it is. Life being life. And for some reason, human beings have separated themselves from, from life. And we believe to be something else. In control of something that we don't even know what it is. Or we call it names. It could be names, Valeria, whatever names we give to this. But it's life. Life, it's 
everything is possible, everything could happen. And ultimately, from my perspective, it's the unknown. It's this amazing unknown. So being open to explore the unknown it very much relates to what you call freedom. When you say relating to accepting the unknown and the whole, the wholeness that we are already, that we are not separate from anything. So we're almost at the end, and I do have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Would you like to add anything, Sammy? No, I think I just really loved what you said about the completeness within, because the same way you described nature earlier, which is it's imperfect, but it's so awe-inspiring. A part of that is in us, too. We're imperfect and awe-inspiring and still at the same time complete. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? To me personally, success would be this process that you described of really being able to see this this consciousness, this this return to nature. Because Valerie, mm, we've spent yeah. so much time yeah. in nature, in the evolutionary process that the modern society is so new. So our soul, the depths of our soul are asking to be united, to be whole again, not just with ourselves, but with all of existence, mm, because it's not right. really, it's not really separate. I think quantum physics really shows us right. how connected everything truly is, right? right? Yeah. And um, to be able to really resonate with those principles and to live from that place in your heart where there's not even a separation anymore between you and I, because yeah. we're the same vibration, we're the same yeah. energy. Yeah. So that to me is is true success. What is another word for healing? Um, so I, I think um, aside from what we've already used a lot throughout, which is the theme, it seems to be the theme of today, which is integration. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. I would just say another word would be um, acceptance or compassion or lack of fear, mm. right? Like that lack of fear and being able to sit still with our with what's already here. Two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving the body or losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Mm, I already try to live from a place which feels very fulfilling, but perhaps I would spend more, more, even more time with people that are close to me and just really make it a point to just soak in their presence even, even more. Yeah, I hear, I hear this um, answer constantly, which kind of reminds us of um, connection, how important it is, love and feeling connected to others. So that level, the, at a deeper level of connectivity with other humans. The last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Well, I do know that I'm part of a connected whole, that I'm part of something bigger. Um, second thing that I know is, like you said, there's nothing flawed or broken about no. what is already here. Right. We just need, we just really need to integrate it. And perhaps the th third thing would be that there is nothing that cannot be healed with love. There's mm. absolutely nothing out there that mm. cannot be healed with love. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? Um, well, my website would be perhaps one of the best ways. It's www.dontwaittolive.com. And that's where you can find out all the links to, to different sections and different blogs and things like that that I've done. Thank you so much again for your wisdom, your presence, this 
beautiful desire to help others and everything else in between that could be felt today. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. Likewise. Bye for now, Sammy. Take care. Bye. You as well. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Saman Nasir and her work, please visit don'twaittolive.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.